You are Locked On Rockets, your daily podcast on the Houston Rockets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everyone, to Locked On Rockets, your home for daily podcast coverage of the Houston Rockets. I'm your host, Ben DuBose. Today's show is brought to you courtesy of our friends and partners over at SeatGeek. Download the SeatGeek mobile app and enter the promo code LONBA. You can get a $20 rebate off of your first SeatGeek purchase. So if we chat on this Thursday, August 3rd, we are officially in the dog days of the NBA calendar. We've been bogged down for a while, in a good way, I suppose, in terms of breaking news, rocket signings, and then new rumors every day on Carmelo Anthony. And then just as soon as the Knicks hit the quote-unquote pause button on talks, then we had the Kyrie Irving blockbuster, the news that he wanted out of Cleveland, and of course all the potential angles in which that could intersect with the Carmelo Anthony rumor of him wanting out of New York. I guess it's more than a rumor at this point. It seems pretty confirmed. And trying to get to Houston. But finally, both of those have calmed down. I do think by training camp, both Kyrie and Carmelo are likely to be in different uniforms, the latter in Houston, of course, than where they are right now. But there's no real deadline until mid-September when we get to training camp. So we do finally have a chance to catch our breath. And instead of just focusing on the micro-level analysis, we can finally turn back to thinking a little bigger picture in terms of the macro of where the Rockets are as a franchise and whether they can actually contend for a title as soon as this year. So to kind of address that topic, I want to get back into the flow of things bigger than just Carmelo rumors. So to do that, I've been soliciting your responses all week via a listener mailbag on Twitter, and we've gotten some really good questions, and I think over the next few minutes we're hopefully going to answer some of the main things that are on y'all's mind. But before I start taking the questions, I want to introduce a special guest that I've got joining the show for the first time. His name is Karthik Prasad, but on Twitter you might know him better as at StanfordKP. He's a big Houston sports fan for everything, Texans, Rockets, Astros, also Stanford alum, I believe. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's his first time on the show, and I've always been impressed with him as a big-picture thinker, does a great job of contextualizing in the moment. So first things first. Karthik, welcome to Lockdown Rockets, buddy. Thank you. Appreciate the time, Ben, and uh, glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you, because like I said, I've been a big fan of your analysis for a while, partially because of how you contextualize. But the other thing that I really like about you, you're definitely a progressive thinker in terms of evaluating through new age tools, analytics, data, all that sort of stuff. But I've seen you show a willingness to be proven wrong, and I think that's such a big deal with analyzing sports in 2017, given all the new numbers, the new tools we have at our disposal. And the reason I'm leading with that, the first question I got after soliciting, you know, basically for my Twitter timeline, questions about what's going on with the Rockets, Mike Meltzer sent a link to me and a couple other folks from The Ringer earlier this week. And the it was a piece, I know you've read it, called The Inefficiency of One of the Most Efficient NBA Players of All Time. And, of course, it's referring to Chris Paul, and Mike was asking my thoughts. And basically what the column is, you can guess the premise on the title. It's the dog days of August. Folks are looking for something thought-provoking to write about. And in this case, what's going on, we all know that Chris Paul, by most analytics metrics, grades out as one of the best players of his generation. And yet a Chris Paul team has never even made it to the conference finals, let alone to the NBA finals or having won a ring. So we're all trying to kind of piece all of that together together. 
and the Ringer piece, and then kind of another piece from Deadspin the next day titled The Chris Paul Problem, kind of piggybacked along the same thing. What essentially these pieces are doing is throwing out theories on why Chris Paul may not be as valuable as some of the numbers suggest. And if you guys haven't read the columns, some of the theories thrown out there are his lack of size, which prevents him from being versatile defensively. They also point out that he's so efficient in terms of hunting for the ideal shot that that actually limits him in the playoffs when defenses are locked in from shooting as much overall. And the ringer, uh, the writer makes it the point that he's never averaged well, I, he's averaged once 25 points per game in a series. And I have some issues with the way those stories are characterized. But before I explain my problems with them, I know you I know you were at least open to some of the ideas when we talked about it earlier in the week. So if you can, give me your reaction to those two stories, the quote-unquote Chris Paul problem, and whether you think there's any validity to it. Yeah, no. Uh, first of all, thanks for the kind words. Yeah, I I read both articles, right? I mean, the Ringer the Ringer did a series of comparisons on on Chris Paul uh, in his playoff series versus you know Westbrook versus Curry in a pretty basic way, I thought. And then the Ringer uh, was, I guess, quoted by the Deadspin article with a little bit of layers on top. But the article, as you mentioned, both articles, as you mentioned, kind of were the same argument, mm-hmm. right? Chris Paul is entirely He's an amazingly efficient player. He doesn't take plays off, possessions off, and that works really well for elite regular seasons. But come playoff time, the competition ratchets it up, the possession game becomes more important, and he, he there's an assumption that he's limited. My reaction to this, though, is that, and I'll start with where I can see some validity, and then I'll switch to you know, where I think there's some holes and we can get your thoughts on that as well. But I think the validity is actually less statistical and more philosophical, right? Mm-hmm. The Clippers system, especially over the five year, five, six years that, that Chris ran it and when Blake Griffin was healthy in the playoffs, was really dom- like he was the dominant playmaker. And I actually went through and made a list of all of the players that he had next to him on the perimeter. <laughs> and and, I, and I'll, I'll quickly do it. It was Eric Bledsoe, Nick Young, Jamal Crawford, Darren Collison, J.J. Redick, and Austin Austin Rivers. Those were the – that's the entire list of quote-unquote playmakers and running mates that he had in in the backcourt with him. And for me, he had to make so many decisions and control the entire pace of the game that I I called it decision fatigue, right, which Mm -hmm. is over time – over the, even the course of one, maybe two playoff series, that wears on you. And he didn't have an outlet on the perimeter to kind of take the load off of him decision-wise, pressure-wise, to go and make plays. And um, I think that's something he'll get relief at uh, here in Houston. And same with James. You can make the same yep. arguments with James, right? James has gone around farther as a league guy. Um, but other than that, they both kind of had similar stories. They've, they've both been the primary playmakers, and to me, it's, this is more of a philosophical limitation. Can you run a system with one primary point guard and get far, uh, far in the playoffs? And, and maybe we have an answer to that, but I don't think it's statistical. And in fact, last, last point on this, if you kind of look at his performance in the playoffs versus the regular season, there is no difference, and it really surprised mm-hmm. me in the, in the articles that they never compared Chris Paul 
in the regular season to Chris Paul in the playoffs, right? They kind of compared Chris Paul in the playoffs to other players in the playoffs, but never to himself. And he actually was a better overall player, more uh, aggressive offensively, et cetera. And so I think the statistical argument's overblown, and, and maybe there's just a broader philosophical argument that you can be open to, but that's kind of how I was, uh, where I ended up on the article. So curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that they never compared Chris Paul to himself. That was the first takeaway I had after after looking through the re, the Ringer article, excuse me. They had the anecdote about him not scoring 25 points per game in a playoff series. Well, folks, he hasn't averaged 20 points, not even 20 in a game since 2009, let alone 25. He's never averaged 25 in his entire career. So that's kind of a weird baseline. You know, you want to compare Chris Paul in the playoffs to Chris Paul in the regular season, not arbitrarily to some version of Chris Paul that doesn't exist. That's where I, it, that's where it kind of lost me is that it felt like you're creating a little bit of a straw man argument. You know, it's like you just came into it from the premise of, okay, Chris Paul's teams have not advanced beyond so-and-so, in this case, the semifinals, so there must be something wrong, so let me theorize this. And instead, they're comparing Chris Paul to other players. Well, what you should be doing is comparing Chris Paul to himself, because obviously we all accept how great of a player he is in the regular season. And beyond that, I thought you hit the nail on the head. What's funny, you were you were making the case for decision fatigue, and when you were when you were talking about that, two things came to mind. First things first, as far as the Clippers in the playoffs, which you really think are 2014 and 2015, 2016 and 2017, you can throw out because both of those, Blake Griffin didn't even make it to the end of the series. In 2016, neither did Chris Paul himself. So those exactly. of injuries, they didn't even have a real shot. 2015, I know they blew the 3-1 lead against the Rockets, but I don't really see that as a huge failure on, beha- on behalf of Chris Paul. Now, it's a failure on behalf of the Clippers, certainly, but when you look at Chris Paul in particular, they beat the Spurs, defending champion in seven games in the first round. Chris Paul, of course, sinking the game winner on essentially one leg in game seven. And then he only played five of the seven games in Houston uh, against Houston in round two and actually did so on a pretty bad leg. So when you consider, yeah. when you consider the injury that they beat the Spurs in seven games and then took Houston to seven. Actually, if not for Josh Smith and Corey Brewer losing their minds, would have beaten Houston in six, all the while him playing on a bad hamstring and actually missing two games. I don't think he played terribly, and I don't think that was a horrible playoff run for Chris Paul of the Clippers. That was a horrible way to end because you never want to blow that kind of lead in game six. But I don't think it was as bad as, you know, the narrative, as bad as it was for the team, I don't think it should have been that way for Chris Paul individually. But the year before that... When you were mentioning decision fatigue, what I thought back to, there's a game, the Western Semis in uh, 2014, when it was Clippers Thunder. And you remember when Chris yep. Paul had those had those breakdowns late in Game Five in Oklahoma City? You remember that? And Absolutely, yeah. Actually, I, I peeked at the highlights again, and it was just two or three late possessions. They were up by I think five, and then just kind of spiraled out. Again. Yeah, and you know the funny thing, I was thinking about that when you mentioned the decision fatigue, because that was a classic, he was by far the best perimeter player, and he did seem to have a meltdown late in that game. And you know what it actually reminded me of a lot? It reminded me a lot of Game 5 this year, the same round, Houston at San Antonio, when even though Harden had a brilliant first half in that game, for whatever reason, in the third, and especially the fourth quarter in overtime, Harden just seemed overwhelmed, for lack of a better term. He just stopped making the decisions that we had seen him make in terms of how to initiate the offense that we'd seen him do all season long. And, you know, it's funny, both game five of the second round, but yeah, both cases, I think decision fatigue is a very 
um, plausible theory for what happened, especially because in both cases, Harden on the 2017 Rockets and Paul on the 2014, but really any of those Clippers teams, those were by far the two best perimeter playmakers and really by far the two best players. I mean, Harden was the only all-star caliber player this year, and there were a couple of points with Blake Griffin in the Clippers tenure where he was legitimately an all-star level player, but certainly he's not a number two along the along the same lines as what LeBron, Kevin Durant, those types of players have. So I think both of them, from a perimeter playmaking standpoint and overall number two standpoint, they both seem to run into trouble in that same game, the same round. And yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, I think the application of data is a little misguided because to me, to make the data relevant, you would need to be comparing Chris Paul to himself, playoff Chris Paul to regular season Chris Paul. As it, yeah. as it is, it seems like you're just kind of abstractly um, just looking at Chris Paul's numbers and trying to poke holes for why hasn't this guy gotten as far as we think he should, given his data. And so that, to me, it, yeah, it gives me more hope because, as you said, it, it's it's more about the fit and less about it, any hole that we can find in his playoff numbers. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, that uh, your thoughts triggered two more for me. One around this idea of what kind of sidekick or second kind of star you would want next to a person like Chris or James, right? Mm. And I think actually both the Clippers and the Rockets have cycled through kind of those, those secondary guards, right? I mean, the Clippers ended up with J.J. Redick mm. as an off-the-screen type of shooter. The Rockets went through Lynn, Beverly, then Eric Gordon last year. I, I would venture to say that none of them, none of those, those secondary pieces were at I mean, you could argue some of them were quote-unquote playmakers, but none of them were the same type of caliber decision makers. And I think that that's going to be yes. important this season, right? Because both Chris and James are the type of players where they feel, maybe rightfully so, that they they can make the best decision on the court on offense, right? And so that to have another person now, to have a legitimate trusted second star, second playmaker, second decision maker, second scorer out there on the perimeter will be huge. And not, neither of them have played with the caliber of player as the other. And so I think that's, that's important. And then the second thought I, I, uh, was, that was triggered was on defense, right? So both of these articles kind of hinted that, hey, you know, Chris Paul is one of the best two-way players of all time, especially a point guard, but that kind of gets minimized. Yeah, they they were trying to build up Paul George by comparison, saying that he doesn't have the defensive versatility that, say, Oklahoma City now does with the Paul George, for one example of it. Yeah, and then, then you go back and you say, well, despite all that, Chris ended up guarding some of the best players on the opposite team, right? Sometimes he would even go, like, in our Clippers Rockets series, he guarded James at some point. Mm-hmm. In that Thunder series you mentioned, he guarded Kevin Durant, and actually successfully. I mean, he's had guys like old Matt Barnes, um, short J.J. Redick, et cetera, next to him. And he's still been the best defensive player on the court. And, yeah, can he switch on to the Kevin Durant of the world today? Maybe not. But now, all of a sudden, when you do add a more deep, deeper stable of defensive complements on the wing, Eric Gordon, Trevor Reza, P.J. Tucker, uh, Luke, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be a lot – a lot different in terms of his experience going into the playoffs. Those are just the two kind of tr- thoughts triggered back as you were going through it. Yeah, I think both of those are good points. And as we wrap up the Chris Paul discussion, 
One note that I saw on Twitter the other day, well, it wasn't on Twitter, it was a link to an article from Matt Moore of CBS Sports that I really enjoyed, which was he pointed out that the Rockets would actually benefit a lot defensively from Chris Paul's awareness off the ball. And I don't think people have made enough of a big deal of just how smart he is defensively. And even if he's not the most versatile in terms of his skill set, just his general awareness is going to mean a lot for the Rockets, including on the defensive end. And the point that Matt made, it was on one of his articles on CBSSports.com, was that Pat Beverly, as great of a defender as he is man-to-man, we've all seen it, he has a tendency to get lost off the ball. He doesn't stay focused as much. He ball watches. We know the types of things. And again, he's still a great man-to-man defender. I have no qualms with him being first-team all-defense. But when you're playing a team like the Warriors, and we can even throw the Spurs in there because we we know how the Spurs move the ball, then Chris Paul's awareness off the ball is going to be a tremendous upgrade. So versatility doesn't just mean... It shouldn't just mean height. It's not just a physical characteristic. It's also... A mental characteristic. It's about awareness. And so I think that was a really good point by Matt. It's not being discussed enough. Even if there are certain physical limitations for Chris, he's such a smart player that he overcomes that with just his overall IQ. And that in and of itself can mean a lot. And if you guys haven't done it again, you can research, uh, just look up Matt Moore's articles at cbssports.com. And it's one of the first ones because again, we're in the dog days of August. These articles are just basically because it's a slow time of the year. So everyone wants something more thought-provoking, bigger picture. So we're all trying our best, but again, it's August 3rd. Yeah. The other... Yeah, and I, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. You take it. I mean, it would be really interesting to see how Bizdelic uses Chris Paul in the kind of pre-safety role. Mm-hmm. I think he can roam. He can, like, dig on bigs. He can. He just will have a lot more freedom, so uh, it'll be interesting to see. But sorry, carry on. Yeah, I was just going to say, my final thought on this before we move on to... Other Rockets topics, including everyone's favorite, Carmelo, is that as Rocket Intellect pointed out on Twitter the other day, besides all of Chris Paul's obvious basketball attributes, in this case, not all players are created equally. And in the comparison of Chris Paul and Paul George, which is what one of the articles, I believe The Ringer, tried to make in terms of the additions by Houston and Oklahoma City, in addition to just having Chris Paul, the basketball player, who is obviously tremendous at that, then there's also Chris Paul the NBA spokesman, and of course with that referring, or what Paul, a.k.a. Rocket Intellect, was referring to was Chris Paul's relationships with LeBron James, with Carmelo Anthony, and, well, the entire Banana Boat crew. So it's not just about Chris Paul, but it's also about how you can build an entire team around him and about how seamless that fit is. So I think that's another important part. Even though it's not directly basketball-related, it sure indirectly is if it helps you lure guys not just like Carmelo, but, you know, conceivably you can make a pretty serious run uh, in 2018 at LeBron as well. Now, before we yep. get to the other parts of the Rockets, including Carmelo, I do want to pause briefly and acknowledge our awesome sponsors over at SeatGeek, because without their love, we wouldn't be able to bring this show to you as frequently as we do. And folks, if you want to see Chris Paul, James Harden, and the Rockets, and, well, probably Carmelo Anthony as well, tickets are going to go on sale in the next six weeks, but it's going to be a very tough ticket to pull. And if you don't get tickets directly from the box office, or if you don't want to pay the premium that comes with that, then folks, you're going to have to look at the secondary market. And among those secondary sites, to me, SeatGeek is by far the most friendly. They're who you should go to. They've got an incredibly friendly app now. You download it literally with just two taps of your finger. You can buy and sell tickets. They guarantee all your tickets. 
in terms of getting the best bang for your buck because they cross compare websites. They also grade from one to 100 so you know you're getting the best value. Every ticket is guaranteed. So I'm a huge SeatGeek fan. I use it myself a lot for the Astros. And if you're a Rockets fan and you're getting ready for a season in which they have James Harden, Chris Paul, and probably Carmelo, then yeah, you should get familiar with SeatGeek as well. And the best part of this is you guys, as my listeners here at Locked on Rockets, y'all all get a $20 rebate off of your SeatGeek purchase. And to do it, it's so easy. Just download that SeatGeek app then enter the promo code L-O-N-B-A. And then from there, the promo code L-O-N-B-A will get you $20 off of your first SeatGeek purchase. Just go to the settings tab and click L-O-N-B-A, and that should automatically take $20 off of your purchase. Well, it has to be a bigger than $20 purchase, but uh, that that should be fairly obvious. So yeah, L-O-N-B-A, use that SeatGeek code. Now, jumping back into the show, we've talked and alluded a lot to Carmelo already. I know a lot of y'all listening want to know exactly what's going on with Carmelo Trade Talks. Right now, I don't have any news for you. In my opinion, despite a lot of what's been discussed on Twitter, this situation is the same that it's been since July 13th, since the Knicks hit that quote-unquote temporary pause button, which is that the Knicks are not fully prepared to accept the deal now. They think that his value is lower than it's ever been, which is true, but it's also of their own doing. And with him having a no-trade clause, it's not much they can do about that unless they want to bring him into the season, so they're threatening to do that. However, are they actually willing to do that? Probably not. It reminds me a lot of the Dwight Howard situation in 2012. It was actually around that same time in July that the Magic stepped back because they weren't thrilled with the options they had, especially because of the limited leverage at the time, and of course they threatened that they could potentially keep him, and actually in their case, the Dwight in 2012, it didn't take until September. It actually happened around August 10th. So keep your fingers crossed. It doesn't necessarily have to take until September, but it easily could because the start of training camp, that's the real leverage point. That's the deadline. So for now, I think we're all in in the same situation in which we know it's highly likely because Carmelo has a no-trade clause. He wants to go to Houston, but he can't force when a deal gets done. The next true leverage point is the start of training camp because for now, there's not much media availability. Any of the negative factors from bringing him to training camp, chemistry, all that sort of stuff, that's not going to matter until training camp starts in mid to late September. So for now, we're just in a holding pattern. I think it's highly likely to happen. I think both Carmelo and the Rockets think that it's going to happen. But as far as when, I would say prepare for September. And if it happens sooner than that, then just treat that as a pleasant surprise. So for us here at Lockdown Rockets, what that means is that We're going to deal with the probability. I'm not going to assume and say for sure that he's going to be a Rocket because, yes, there's a greater than 1% shot that maybe the Knicks really do call his bluff and say, hey, we're going to take this into the season. But I think it's highly likely that at some point by camp, and it's fair to characterize the Rockets' position right now as as optimistic as well, that this deal is going to get done. So as we jump back into the rest of listener questions, and one of these from John Hunter, who asks on Twitter, do we think Carmelo will be used as a strictly as a stretch four and as a pick-and-roll shooter, or will he ever post up? And of course, that's on the assumption that Carmelo does join the Rockets, but I think it's definitely more likely than not. And despite what you see from people online, I think the odds are pretty much the same today as they were one or two weeks ago. We're still in the same place. It's frustrating, but you just have to stay patient and know that the fundamentals that have been driving Carmelo to Houston for some time, folks, they're all still in place. It just may take getting closer to training camp for that deadline pressure to truly force New York's hand. But jumping into the X's and O's, I'll give I'll give my take first, and then Karthik, you can give yours. But I could see him in the post a little. I don't think it'll be 
all that significant because certainly post-offense is not a big part of what Mike D'Antoni does. However, I do think a consistent problem for the Rockets for the last couple of years, especially, has been those minutes without James Harden, especially against great teams. In the regular season, they were okay last year, but once they got to the playoffs, the minutes in the playoffs without James Harden were very difficult because for all the strengths of the offense, for all the shooting, there are not that many guys who can truly create their own offense. I don't expect a Carmelo post-game to be a staple. I think primarily, as John says, stretch four and as a pick-and-roll shooter, that's where he's going to make his money as a stretch four for Mike D'Antoni. But in those minutes without James Harden, the ball does tend to get sticky sometimes, especially against great defenses. And so to me, having Carmelo as a post-option, that's a key in small stretches to potentially unlock defenses. I'm talking the Golden State Warriors of the world, those types of teams. And just having that versatility when James Harden is not on the floor gives the Rockets another dimension that I would at least expect them to experiment with. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, a couple of thoughts. The first on the the posting up, I agree with you. I think they'll use it as needed. I'm intrigued by the possibility that they might use it to change the pace in which they play, especially against second units and being able to go and get a shot um, that they feel comfortable with or operate in kind of an inside-out type of game. I think another aspect of posting up that if they do try it is to make some of these other opponents work on defense, right? If you're playing the Warriors, and let's say Durant or Draymond Green matches up against Melo, mm-hmm. you're going to want to make them work and, and on the defensive end, and I think that's part of it. So that's on the post-up piece. I think on the the stretch four pick-and-roll aspect, I mean, I think he can effectively replicate what Ryan Anderson currently brings, which is if you put him in a pick-and-roll with James and and he can spot up and hit wide-open threes at a comparable rate, I think where Melo would really shine is is what he can do off the bounce, right? I mean, if you put him in a pick-and-roll, he can attack a closeout, either go all the way to the rim, or hit another shooter, and I think that was missing last year where if you had a good enough defensive team, they could kind of swallow up that pick and roll, especially in the San Antonio series. We saw it, and there are plenty of games where we all wanted Ryan to shoot more, um, but I don't think he had the space or the quick release against a good defensive team to do it, and I think Melo, Melo is just better at those things. Um, so that's what gets me excited in addition to kind of the versatility that he can bring and the types of ways he can score. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about in that context. I think certainly you know the post is one element of it, but just overall shot creation. Yeah, you have to challenge a team like the Warriors in so many different ways, and yeah, it, it's pretty intriguing. And it's an obvious upgrade from Ryan. That's why it's such a seamless fit. And you know, as I pointed out before, for those wondering about losing Ryan Anderson shooting, the catch and shoot numbers between Ryan Anderson and Carmelo Anthony are shockingly close. Carmelo's numbers overall are inefficient because of the role he was put in in New York, but just strictly as a stretch four, just that aspect of it, he can give you fairly comparable production to Ryan Anderson. So that's why the Rockets are so excited about this is because, yeah, you get fairly similar dynamic to what Ryan gives you from spacing, but then, of course, you have all this other upside in, in terms of how he can score in so many other ways. Now, the other parts of the Carmelo talk, um, or I shouldn't say Carmelo directly, it's assuming this gets done, is there anything else to go? And we've got two questions I'm going to combine into one. One is, after Melo, do we sit tight or make more moves? And the next one is, is a backup point guard still needed or are the Rockets content with Taylor and Brown? Well, for starters, my answer would be, 
I would be shocked if Isaiah Taylor is still there because I think it's actually likely that Taylor goes in a Carmelo trade. They probably need it for the numbers, and he's one of the only young players with upside. So as much as I like Isaiah Taylor, UT guy seems to have a lot of upside. Uh, he, my guess is either New York or Team 3 or Team 4. Ultimately, he's not in Houston whenever Carmelo Anthony arrives. But even if he's gone... I don't really see them looking, other than for one more two-way roster spot. They still have, they signed Demetrius Jackson, they still have another two-way spot. But other than that, I don't really see them needing a backup point guard per se, because you've got 96 minutes at the guard spots, and between Chris Paul, um, James Harden, and Eric Gordon, those minutes, uh, those minutes are spoken for. And then you have Demetrius Jackson, who's a pretty intriguing candidate as a two-way player, uh, two-way contract, I should say, not a two-way player, uh, you know, kind of waiting in the wings should they need extra playing time. And, of course, there's Bobby Brown. So the Rockets are so deep right now to where you even have guys like Luke Bamute, Tarek Black as fringe rotation players. I'd be surprised if there's anything else coming. To me, you know, it's the inevitable three or four for one Carmelo trade involving Ryan Anderson and those expiring contracts. And then beyond that, I'd be surprised if there are any other roster moves before camp other than one other than one more signing to a two-way contract involving the D-League. Is that where you're at? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think Mike D'Antoni has said as much, right? He, mm-hmm. The goal of this is to have one of Chris or James on the floor. And at that point, I mean, they, they, be, they become your de facto point guard. So I don't think a back, backup is necessarily needed. Um, and between Eric Gordon, even Troy Williams getting some minutes um, at the two... Uh, I think their their backcourt and perimeter rotation is 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 pretty deep right now, and and um, I don't see them making those either. Okay, we just touched on some of the lineup pieces, especially the bench guys. I mentioned Ba Mute, Tarek Black, and question from Jackson Hart. Most intriguing lineup for next season, and this was thrown out there. I, I forgot who mentioned it, but I am really intrigued to see defensively what they can do when they play Tucker and Bob Mute together. If you think about, you know, and this is no shot at Trevor Ariza at all, hopefully Trevor, in addition to being a good defensive player, his ability to shoot from three is going to be uh, hopefully much improved now that he finally gets some time off. But if you can play Tucker and Bob Mute together at the forward spots, and then either with the length of Clint Capella inside or even without a center and with Trevor Ariza out there as well, but to me, either those two, Ba Mute and Tucker with Capella, or basically a, a super hybrid lineup with both of those guys and Ariza, that's the most intriguing lineup to me, is to see how good they can be defensively with, this, with these new pieces. Because one of, the, one of the other articles that came out today, and you referenced this to me uh, earlier in our DM chat, was the, uh, the RPM projections from ESPN. And ESPN, in addition to projecting the Rockets to be the second best team in the league behind the Warriors, they actually projected the Rockets to be a better defensive team, fourth in the league, than offensive, which is fifth in the league. And that's shocking, but of course that speaks to the level of defense they added in the offseason with Chris Paul, Luke Bamute, and P.J. Tucker. So to me, it's those defensive lineups that get that get really I- intriguing. Where do you weigh in on that? Yeah, um, if I had to answer with a specific lineup, um, try this on for size. James Harden, Trevor Ariza, P.J. Tucker, Luke, and Capella. Wow. Right. And I think, and the reason it's intriguing, not that they'll use it a lot, is just you have all, every guy is 6'5 and above. Mm-hmm. You can almost switch on the perimeter completely. And you obviously have an elite point guard on the floor. 
And I just think the, the versatility of that lineup defensively is incredible. And that's, that's a lineup without Chris Paul, without Eric Gordon, too, right? But it's just so intriguing in terms of matchups as to what they can throw on the floor. Um, but, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the, the, it'll be really interesting to see who they use defensively on which type of players. Because, for example, Bob Mute is he's 6'8", 6'9", has the length to contest, uh, you know, with Col- the Kawhi Leonard's attempt like, to the world. P.J. Tucker is a little more stocky, um, can match up with someone like Draymond Green, for example. Um, and then Ariza then can be freed up to, to kind of take and chase whoever, whether it's a point guard or a shooting guard. And I think that that's, that's, that's what's interesting about the pieces they added. Um, and and last, last thought on this is just, I think secretly they've gotten better as a rebounding team, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Tucker, um, even Tarek Black are actually really good rebounders for their position. And, and replacing some of those depth pieces with those two guys, um, I think will really help on the defensive glass, which will also contribute to why I think articles like the ESPN RPM one um, is, is projecting that. Because I think they'll be a better rebounding team. And remember last year with those stretches where they just sometimes just couldn't get a rebound. And those second and third uh, shots just killed them um, after the initial stop. So I, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic there, too. Yeah, that length lineup you threw out there with all three of those forwards and Capella, I don't know how many teams that would work against, but even the possibility, it's exciting. And yeah, the length is an underrated factor of what they've done because in the playoffs, a lot of folks talk about how small they were, which was true. It limited their options. And then especially after the Nene injury, they only had seven players, really seven and a half. You can say they half-trusted Decker in the San Antonio series, but they only... They only had so many players they could trust, and so you had these super small lineups with Beverly, Lou, sometimes James, and Eric, and they didn't really have a choice. And a lot of folks thought that, well, that's just Mike D'Antoni ball. Actually, I don't think it necessarily is. I think the first 40 games of last year when they were so dominant, started off 31-9, and Corey Brewer played a very key role for them. It was just, as Eric Gordon started to fall off and... Corey Brewer, for all of his strengths, the guy just could not hit threes at a high enough clip to play in that offense. And so it was one of those things like Lou was the guy available at the time, so they made the trade. And I understand why they did it. I think it was a good move. But I think a lot of folks, especially on the national side, just mistakenly thought that, well, Mike D'Antoni wants to play small. No, I think they liked a lot earlier in the year when they had the length of Ariza and Brewer and could use that in tandem with Capella, those super athletic lineups. It just, unfortunately, that specific configuration was not going to work because Corey just did not shoot well enough for him to really be playable on a consistent basis in this offense. But if you, you know, if you replace that Brewer role with guys like P.J. Tucker and Luke Bamute, guys who can shoot the three well enough to at least be at a passable level, then, yeah, all of a sudden, I think Mike D'Antoni is not averse to using that at all. That's kind of a misnomer I think he gets. I don't think he's as you know, committed to small ball as a lot of folks think he is. I think that's just sort of how it happened last year. You know, you can only play the cards you're dealt, and Lou Williams was the most reasonable guy, especially to upgrade Brewer at the deadline, so they did it. But it does not have to be that way. So I think that's very exciting as far as a possibility. And this next question will tie into this a little bit more, but uh, Houston Sports WWE asked grades for the offseason so far, and outside of Chris Paul, uh, what free agent do you see having the best season? And for me, I think you have to give them an A, even not including Carmelo. Chris Paul is the most influential free agent at the time that Gerald Morey has ever gotten. Even relative to Dwight Howard in 2013, we all knew Dwight with the back injury, and there were a lot of questions about him from a character standpoint. James Harden, as great as he's turned out to be, in October 2012, there were some questions then. 
Chris Paul, at the time of the acquisition, is the biggest home run that Gerald Morey has ever hit. And you've essentially doubled your amount of all-stars on the team. So if you do that, yeah, you have to get an A for your offseason. And, you know, they've gone where entering the offseason, at best, they were probably the fourth best situation in the NBA after the Warriors, the Cavaliers, and the Spurs. And I think by now it's pretty clear they've probably leapfrogged the Spurs and the Cavaliers, where Golden State's the only better situation. So they haven't climbed the mountain entirely, but as far as what's reasonably what can originally be expected in one off season to go from, you know, fourth or fifth to second and double your amount of legitimate all-stars, I don't see how you can not give it an A. And as far as new pieces, the guy for me is obviously P.J. Tucker. We don't talk about him enough because right after, you know, P.J. Tucker came right after the Chris Paul, and then after that, you had the Luke Bahamute signing, and then you've had Tarek Black, and of course, we've had nonstop Carmelo Rubers ever since. But... P.J. Tucker, not only, it's not just his defense and the fact that he can shoot, he brings a brand of competitiveness, a hard edge that I think the Rockets really, really need. If there's one thing you could say about the Rockets, and, you know, fair or unfair, you could make the characterization of how things went in Game 6, how they responded in that San Antonio series after Game 5, you could say, how do they respond when they get punched in the mouth? Well, P.J. Tucker is the prototype junkyard dog. So besides all the attributes that he brings as far as his shooting, his defense, I love his mentality. And if that is a weakness for the Rockets team in terms of you know how they respond when getting punched in the mouth, then I think P.J. Tucker is, the, is a perfect character signing. And of course, Chris Paul as well. But the question was not counting Chris Paul. So for me, P.J. Tucker is a guy, as far as their um, free agency signings, a non-Paul guy that I'm especially excited about. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I completely agree. I, if I had to pick a different player, I'm actually pretty high on Luke and Bob Mute. Mm. Um, I know that he was signed for the minimum, um, but I, and, and maybe there's an expectation he plays less, but I think he could have a huge role for us. I mean, one underrated aspect of that signing is his age, right? He's 30. Um, Ariza's older, Chris Paul's older, uh, PJ Tucker is also older, and, and he's actually still, I think, in the defensive prime of his career he can stick with guys and uh, he shot 39 percent from three he can moonlight as a pretty good effective small ball four and i i think for the value that we got with that and the depth he's going to add in guarding some of these more versatile uh, perimeter scores um it was a home run i think he'll have a great season for us because just uh, just based on the shots that he's going to get in the offense and and the fact that he won't have a huge defensive load either Mm-hmm. Um, so if I pick another guy, I'm pretty high. And as far as grades, are you giving him an A too? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, no question. I think like any time, any time you can add Chris Paul, it, it's great. You know, the one question that if I play devil's advocate mm-hmm. in my mind was always, you know, what if they had waited till free agency, right? And like they hadn't traded for Chris Paul, and uh, what could they have done? And and you know, you think back to the Paul George trade happening, kind of seen out of the blue, uh, and I, I bet there was a, a rumored trade around Eric Gordon and Patrick Beverly for that. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if there is a way that they could have ended up with both of those guys, given given the price that Paul George went for. I don't, I'm not sure if that could have happened. I've... Just to play devil's advocate, I think they took the certainty of the Chris Paul deal and the flexibility it gave operating over the cap to go sign P.J. Tucker and Nene, etc. But I just kind of wonder sometimes, you know, what's if they hadn't just cashed in on that right there, which is the right move, 
what might have happened. Um, but overall, definitely an A. So. Yeah, it's funny. We've heard a lot of talk, not to turn this into a baseball discussion, but about what didn't happen for the Astros at the trade deadline this week. And part of the issue for the Astros, they did put a lot of their eggs in the basket of Zach Britton and the Baltimore Orioles with a GM and front office structure that's notorious for not being entirely trustworthy. And if there's an NBA equivalent to that, especially some of the reports that have leaked since, it might be the front office of the Indiana Pacers led by Kevin Pritchard. And so I don't know. I, I, th- I buy the certainty aspect. I don't know if Daryl really knew where he stood with Pritchard and the Pacers at that time. And, yeah, maybe he didn't want to take the chance. The, yeah. the, the other side of it is even if that deal would have worked, then we're learning – we're learning what I think we did not know in June, which is just how difficult Ryan Anderson is to move. Now, I do think Ryan's contract is still movable, but I think what's ended up happening is that the salary cap coming in lower than expected and then flattening out in the years ahead, Ryan has less proportionate value than folks thought because even though we all knew he was a little overpaid, at the same time we thought, well, this is just the new norm and we're just going to have to get used to it. Well, it's not the new norm. We've seen guys like Luke Bamute even go for the minimum. So it makes Ryan's four years, $80 million stick out like a sore thumb more. So my guess is, I don't know if the Rockets will ever admit it, but my suspicion is that they did not think in June that Ryan Anderson would be as difficult to move as he ultimately has been. So if you go that route of you know, staying in the mix for Paul George and ultimately trading Eric Gordon and Pat Beverly for that, then the only way you get Chris Paul is by moving out Ryan Anderson. And while that's probably not impossible, at the same time, if you can get squeezed on it and teams would know the Rockets were desperate having to move for Chris Paul, they could, you know, before you know it, you, you know, you lose Eric Gordon because you have to use that to make the salaries match for George. And you probably lose a couple of more future first round picks to dump Ryan Anderson's contract to get the money for Chris Paul. So in theory, it might have been possible, but at the same time, there's a ton of risk of that because A, you have to make sure that, you know, you get Chris Paul and then, you know, to move Ryan Anderson, who knows what that, who knows what that takes. I think unlike the Astros, I, I agree. I think that the Rockets took the, the, the route of more certainty. And while, yeah, Paul George would give them, give them even more upside at the same time, they kept Eric Gordon and if, if, assuming they're able to flip uh, Ryan Anderson in a Carmelo deal down the line, then, yeah, I'm perfectly fine with this route as well. Um, yeah, the final question, and this is a bigger one. I intentionally left it for last from Caleb Harden. Owner possibilities, thoughts on a foreign owner, and is the LeBron opt-and-trade possibility from the ESPN piece a possibility? So I'm going to break this in two, because these are so big, but I'm going to start with the owner, I'm going to finish with LeBron. Owner possibilities, thoughts on a foreign owner. When the Rockets first went for sale, I was actually expecting it to be more of a group dynamic, because the price that we've seen at anywhere from 2.0 to 2.7 billion for the expected sale is so big, it's tough to find individuals with that level of cash flow. So I honestly thought it might be an investment group. And there'll probably be some smaller investors. We've definitely heard in recent days about everything from Beyonce to Dikembe Mutombo to Hakeem. Some people even throwing Barack Obama out there, all sorts of names like that. But what's interesting, I'm sure you saw this. There's a great article by Jonathan Fagan, Rockets beat writer for The Chronicle. And he interviewed a lot of people that are kind of plugged in on franchise sales. And the big takeaway from the Fagan piece was that he anticipated it to be effectively 
a single buyer. Now, there might be a few small minority stakes in there, but he thought for this to get done, the NBA would want someone with the cash flow to essentially make this happen on his own. And that's that was a little surprising to me because with this figures this high, I thought you might be more likely to see more of a uh, more of a split. So, if it's more individual owner, that's interesting because if you get a good owner, that's better because you know, he owns you know, Rockets fans are used to Leslie Alexander owning 100% of the Rockets. So, if you get a good owner, that's good. If it's a bad owner, then it certainly cuts the other way. As far as you know, specific owners, I'm not going to hazard a guess. We've all heard Tillman Fertitta here locally, but the bottom line is there's lots of there's lots of possibilities. Only Tad Brown and the NBA League office really knows them, and they're going to vet all of them over the next few months. As far as a foreign owner, and I think that's alluding to a lot of the Chinese possibilities, I'm not opposed to it. However, my primary consideration, if it's not an owner with either Houston ties or very well known in America, I do think having a figurehead such as a Matumbo, such as a Hakeem, even a Beyonce, is important because the owner these days, more than anything else, they're seen as a figurehead. And so I think having someone that you can throw out there as far as in your meetings with free agents, courtside at Toyota Center, someone who will get players around the league to take notice. I'm not opposed to a foreign owner. At the end of the day, if they're willing to invest, if they're willing to pay the luxury tax for a good team, those types of things, if they're, if they're willing to let Gerald Morey and his team do their thing without meddling, that's all that matters. And whether it's a, an incredibly well-known owner or someone from China or somewhere else in the world, it doesn't matter. That's what's going to long-term determine their success or failure. But as far as foreign owner, I'm open to it, but I would like to see, in that case, some sort of smaller, it can be 5 10%, something like that, some sort of figurehead that brings credibility. Because I think that's going to be the one question when the Rockets make this ownership move is, Leslie Alexander is a brand name, people around the league respect and know that he is the face of the Houston Rockets and he brings a lot of credibility. So I'd like the Rockets to have someone, if it's not an owner that people know, at least someone in the group, and it sounds like it's not going to be a huge group, but at least a 5 or 10% stake that I think brings credibility. That's important. As far as LeBron, again, I've said it before, it's unlikely just because there's so many options and I'll believe he leaves Cleveland when he actually does, but is it possible? Sure it is, because if you have Chris Paul here already, and especially if you lure Carmelo, that's two of his closest friends. I think it's pretty clear at this point in LeBron's career, he's not just going for the money. I think he's willing to cut deals, as are all of those guys, if it's the right situation. And as far as a trade, people think the Rockets are worse off in terms of assets than they actually are. People think the Rockets are worse off because for Carmelo, given his age, given his limitations... Ryan Anderson's the only guy that makes sense because as much as we like Carmelo and you know he's an exciting guy, he's 33, he has his warts, and I'm aware of that. However, if the situation is right, they are going to have assets. Eric Gordon at 13.5 million, PJ Tucker at 7.5 million, that's a pretty good starting package for a team like like Cleveland. If you're gonna lose LeBron no matter what, then you offer them Eric Gordon and PJ Tucker, those are nice building blocks, then throw in a couple of first round picks. I think it gets the Rockets in the conversation, and of course the Rockets, as good of a basketball fit as any besides the Warriors, having at least Chris Paul and possibly Carmelo as well, I think the Rockets are in the conversation for LeBron. Will it happen? I wouldn't bet on it, just because there's so many possibilities, and again, Cleveland can offer the most money, all that kind of stuff, but I think the Rockets are at least in the conversation. So as far as owner, LeBron, those are my takes as we close out the podcast. Karthik, uh, your takes on both of those. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'll keep it brief, too. Uh... 
I mean, I think the, the owner possibilities are exciting. I mean, a lot of the names mentioned, it's good to see that they have interest. Specifically on the foreign piece, I think it's actually going to be harder than it's made out to be for foreign, like a, a single foreign individual or a, gr- a foreign group to buy the rock. It's just because of limitations on how, how much people can invest from overseas in the U.S. And and so I, while it's, it's a possibility, I'm not really counting on it. And I, I agree with your point, right? You, you're... The owner is actually pretty active, and whether it's owner like rules committees, mm-hmm. trades, um, the sales, the business decisions. I mean, there's got to be someone here day to day that I think can help make those decisions. That was actually cited as one of the reasons that Leslie and Alexander's kind of wants to sell the team. I mean, for ex- as exciting as that sounds, it, it, it can get it can wear on you. And so, I think from an ownership standpoint, we're going to need someone to operate to help operate with Tad and, and Daryl. Uh, and so, uh, while you know the foreign group is a possibility, we'll see if it actually happens. And then on the LeBron piece, I mean, yeah, I mean, is it technically possible with the, the salary cap and the rules in our roster? Absolutely. I think you make a great point about our asset. Um, Eric Gordon, uh, Tucker is, is a great starting piece for that. And I think it it'll just be interesting to see, you know, because Chris Paul has the opt out as well, and, and he he could sign a long term contract at different levels and. And so I think there, there's a lot of moving pieces in that equation. If if if, and if LeBron did call up Daryl Morey and say, "Hey, I want to come," so, um, but first things first, I think we get through this season. We try and uh, yeah, and get mellow. But yeah, all those things are possible, which is exciting. Yeah, it's a long way off, but it's exciting to think about because when you lure a player like Chris Paul, part of his appeal, as I was saying earlier, contrasting him with Paul George, as the Ringer article did when we first started off. Yeah, you're missing that part of what draws you to a player like Chris Paul is his link around the league. The one downside scenario, I mean, this is incredibly speculative down the line, but it's been raised to me, the prospect of the hard cap, because if you were to do a sign and trade for LeBron, you would be hard capped. I feel like it would almost be impossible to keep Clint Capella in that circumstance just because Clint, he's going to get a big payday from the Rockets or anyone else after next year. And if you have the big four, so to speak, of Paul, Harden, LeBron and Carmelo, I really don't know with a hard cap if it's possible to give Clint Capella anywhere close to his money and then, of course, actually fill out a roster, even with just minimum guys around that. So it would come at a price, but if it's LeBron, almost anything is worth it. But as you said, I mean, this is all incredibly speculative. It's just amazing that we're even at a point with the Rockets where we can even think about it being remotely possible because, again, prior to uh, June, even in late May, I think the question was if you could even acquire one star, meaning someone like Chris Paul, let alone guys like Carmelo and LeBron on top of them. So above all else, at least just be thankful that we have that possibility to even think about as we now are in these dog days of summer. Anyway, folks, that's Karthik Prasad. That's his first time on Lockdown Rockets. Thought it went very well. Follow him on Twitter, at StanfordKP. Karthik, any last words, man? Again, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, and, and Ben, I always, uh, have always been a big fan of your work, and um... Thanks for having me on. Uh, very excited, even though we are in the doldrums, that uh, the Texans season, Astros playoff, and the Rockets season are right on around the corner. So uh, exciting times ahead. So appreciate the time. Absolutely. Appreciate you being here. And I know it was a little long. We've been over 50 minutes now. But, folks, we've had a lot to talk about. I think we've covered a lot of ground. So, again, thanks to Karthik for coming on. Thanks to all you guys for listening. Again, I'm Ben Dubose, your host. If you're not already following me on Twitter, you can do so at Ben Dubose. Locked on Rockets, the show. You can follow at Locked on Rockets. 
And also email the show, LockedOnRockets at gmail.com. If you've got questions or suggestions, if you want to join a future mailbag like our participants did today, please email us, LockedOnRockets at gmail.com. Or if you want to inquire about becoming a potential sponsor of this program, just as SeatGeek was today. Remember, download that SeatGeek mobile app and enter the promo code LOMBA. You can get a $20 rebate off of your first SeatGeek purchase. So for now, I think uh, Karthik and I can sign off right here. Thanks to all of you guys again for listening. Happy Thursday. Have a good weekend. I look forward to talking with you again in the coming days, hopefully with a few more concrete Carmelo rumors. For now, have a good evening.